Good day, everyone, as one would say it in Australia, and welcome once again to the Clifford Chance Lab Chat Series podcast, a space for our experts to discuss legal innovation developments and trends faced by lawyers and the business world today. I'm Joanne Trunk, the Legal Innovation Lead of Create Plus 65 at Clifford Chance, and once again, I'm hosting our Lab Chat podcast series. Create Plus 65 is Clifford Chance's global innovation lab, a strategic space that unites our lawyers, our clients, and a wider legal community to discover the future of legal services through research, education, and collaboration. In our lab chat episodes, we invite industry-leading speakers to discuss trending developments, interesting conversations, and engaging topics around legal innovation and technology in the APAC region and beyond. Recently, I came across a report dated August 2022 entitled Neurotechnology, Law and the Legal Profession, written by Dr. Alan McKay for the Law Society of England and Wales, which made me believe that it is possible to augment my current brain capacity through neurotechnology, i.e. by putting on a brain bracelet or a helmet. To find out more, I'm very excited to welcome our guest for today, none other than Dr. Alan John McKay himself. Dr. Allen has been named by Australasian lawyer as one of the most influential lawyers of 2021 for his work on neurotechnology and has very kindly agreed to speak with me about neurotechnology and its emerging impact on law and the legal profession. Dr. Allen, great to have you here today. Can we start with a quick introduction about yourself and some of the work or research? Thanks very much for the invitation. So my name's Alan McKay. I'm qualified as a solicitor in Scotland. I used to be a commercial litigator for a while in Hong Kong, but I'm now an academic at Sydney Law School. And for a while, I've been working on neuroscience and the law. But more recently, I started working on neurotechnology and the law. Thank you, Dr. Allen. That's a really broad area of expertise and network, and I'm really looking forward to learning all about neurotechnology from you today. So for myself, I've still got the Monday blues from yesterday, and I can definitely do with a microchip implant this morning. But back on a more serious note, perhaps let's start with a very basic question. What is neurotechnology? So neurotechnology is technologies that interact with the brain or some other part of the nervous system. And that might involve reading from the brain or nervous system or writing to it. So reading means taking data from the brain or nervous system and writing to it means acting upon it to influence it. I think it's probably easiest to get a sense of what neurotech is by considering some specific examples. So you might have heard of a condition called locked-in syndrome, which is a sort of extremely debilitating condition in which a person is unable to use their muscle systems. So they can't use their hands, they can't use their legs, they might not even be able to blink an eyelid or speak. And so some people with locked-in syndromes now have a brain implant that reads from the brain and it reads neural activity and it enables them to say for example control a cursor compose email interact with the web online shopping perhaps interact with a device like a robotic hand to feed themselves that's a a sort of wonderful brain reading device that allows people to re-engage with the world so that device is only for taking information from the brain in order to control computer or, or some other device 
Another kind of device, again, in the therapeutic domain is one aimed at epilepsy that is not responding well to medication and perhaps a person is still getting epileptic fits. Well, some of those people have got a device implanted in the brain, obviously FDA approved in America, and that device monitors the brain and using a machine learning approach, a sort of AI approach, it identifies the neural precursors to epileptic fits. And then when it detects those neural precursors, it acts to stimulate the brain to stop it. So basically, it's a device that's implanted in people's brains. It constantly monitors the brain that's reading from the brain. And then occasionally and only when necessary, it acts to write to the brain or to stimulate it to try and stop the fit. So it's like a two-way interaction with the brain. One thing to think about in terms of newer technology is the invasive, non-invasive distinctions. The two forms of newer technology that I've just mentioned are implanted in the brain, and so they are quite invasive, and you can get different degrees of invasiveness. And then you can have non-invasive newer technology, so that might be an EEG headset or helmet that reads activity from the brain but doesn't require any kind of implantation. That's what Neurotech is in a brief form. The helmet is certainly something that's easier to use, I believe. I was just watching a video this morning about a monkey with an implanted chip who was able to control a game and just applying that. So you've just mentioned about, you know, the use of neurotechnology in the health setting. How can it apply in the legal industry? Maybe before getting to that, I might just mention a couple of other applications. As well as therapeutic applications, there are also non-therapeutic applications. So some people are using non-invasive neurotechs or some form of headset for, for gaming. And a lot of interest at the moment in the metaverse. That's a possibility. It's not a current common way of getting into the metaverse, but some companies are working on it. I mean, there are also applications in the workplace. So, for example, we have workplace brain monitoring in some circumstances. Say, for example, a person driving a heavy goods vehicle might have a headset to monitor attention for health and safety purpose in mind. I guess another application that's worth mentioning is in the military context. So there's an organization in America called the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency or otherwise known as DARPA, and they are an organization that tries to keep America's military advantages set up after the Cold War, after the Soviets shot the Americans by sending up Sputnik satellite, and the Americans sort of panicked and tried to set up their own agency that would make sure they stayed ahead in tech. They've had a long-standing interest in neurotech. So, for example, in the future, you might see soldiers going through the battlefield carrying the weapon, maybe with augmented reality glasses, controlling a drone swarm by way of brain-computer interface, and the drone swarm would be going ahead to provide intel. I think before considering the implications for lawyers, it's worth considering the more general applications. So why should the legal industry consider neurotechnology, or should the legal industry even start considering it? I think they should because there's quite a remarkable development in neurotechnology. So, for example, it's possible to show somebody a movie and decode a hazy reconstruction of the images that they're seeing. 
from their neural activity. So a greater reason for lawyers to think about it is, well, really, there's, there's quite a lot of economic excitement. So I think one reason for lawyers to be interested in it right now, rather than, say, in the short term or the medium term, is there are an increasing number of companies fueled by a sort of general economic excitement about neurotech that was largely kick-started by Elon Musk's interest. And so there's probably an opportunity for developing client base and attracting new clients and maybe specializing in neurotech, whether that be an individual lawyer or a law firm that wants to be seen as a neurotech firm. And so that would be one reason. Moving into the medium term, as the thing progresses, then it seems like there's likely to be a variety of odd legal questions for lawyers. Employment lawyers might be interested in the question of, say, a company wants to engage in brain monitoring to monitor the attention of their workers. There's employment lawyer, law dimension, lecturing criminal law. There's an interesting question about what kind of conduct constitutes the actus reus if somebody commits an offence by way of brain-computer interface. What if some sort of brain tech becomes a good way of managing angry outbursts? Would it be an extension of electronic monitoring in the community to involve some sort of brain monitoring? Contract lawyers, you know, so let's say somebody's using a bit of neurotech to manage their psychiatric condition, say, or they use it for gaming or something, and maybe the device notices when a person goes into a particular showroom to buy something and electrically stimulates the brain to make the person a bit more impulsive. In contract law, you might think, well, is that unconscionable conduct? It seems a bit odd. So there might be some interesting questions that require legal responses. But I think the first thing is probably acting for the neurotech companies themselves and perhaps guiding them through the regulatory process and that sort of thing. And then in time, starting to address the legal questions that emerge from neurotech being integrated into many people's lives. Thank you. That's very, very insightful. And you mentioned just a few moments ago that law firms could use neurotechnology to attract clients. How so? How can it be used to attract clients? Can you put it into a bit of a perspective? So what I thought was just some lawyers and some law firms have become known for specializing in having tech clients. And something similar might happen in respect to neurotech. So neurotech is not the same as, you know, just general tech. There's a brain dimension to it. But it might be possible for a particular law firm or a particular lawyer to develop specialism in the issues relating to neurotechnology. It's an opportunity to develop client base and to specialize. And I guess one thing to think about is law firms might start to monitor what's going on in the neurotech space and so they get a good sense of the development as they happen and who are potential clients and that sort of thing. And they might also think about their hiring policies. You know, of course, uh, law firms might be interested with or have been interested for a while in, in people from a tech background, but, you know, maybe the sort of biomedical engineering, neuroscience dimension might be something to consider in hiring policies if firm wants to specialize in neurotech. And then there's probably a marketing dimension to it. You know, of course, if you are going to specialize in neurotech, you want to let potential clients know this. 
And then, you know, maybe for existing lawyers who are in a firm that maybe want to pivot a little bit, you know, there might be a sort of CPD angle to it all. And I guess the upshot of the whole thing is that there's a new sector that has been an area of scientific research for a long time and military research, but it's becoming a more of a consumer area and also a more widely used therapeutic area and there's opportunities. So law firms and individual lawyers might wish to try and take advantage of these opportunities that are undoubtedly coming. That all sounds great. And I was also looking at this phrase, which I came across in my research, cognitively enhanced lawyers. What does this mean? Right. So I mentioned earlier that there were military interest in cognitive enhancement. So if you think about paying attention, capacity to pay attention or capacity to remember things. So either of these things might be enhanced by way of neurotech. You know, there's projects underway to try and improve attention or to improve memory. Now, I can remember when I was a legal practitioner, of course, it's quite good to be able to remember everything. One thing, it looks impressive. Another thing is it saves time. So obviously, remembering things is good. And of course, if somebody's appearing in court, then they want to also be able to remember things. You know, of course, there's limits to our cognitive capacity. We might not be able to concentrate for as long as we'd like to. And that by way of some kind of magnetic stimulation or electrical stimulation or some other form of stimulation that might be provided by neurotech, that might be emerging way of gaining competitive advantage over one's fellow lawyers. The other dimension to all of this, as Richard Susskind and and others have pointed out, there's an issue with this question about what can machines do and what do you need a human lawyer for? And perhaps some sort of cognitive enhancement might be a way of human lawyers keeping up with the machines as the machines start to, or legal tech starts to do more tasks that were traditionally performed by human lawyers. That's all very, very exciting. As you've mentioned, many questions and concerns will emerge. And the introduction of neurotechnology on a wider scale, which looks like it's already started, but you know, on a wider scale across the legal profession and beyond will change, not just human rights, but also social, economic and politics and legal issues are going to arise. So how do we take charge of it? Where do we start you know, from a sort of law and regulatory perspective? I think that's a good question. It's a very important question. There are many sort of ethical issues relating to neurotechnology and the social, economic and political issues. And you start to get a sense of them by just remembering that lawyers are a part of their community and they might be subject to these pressures. And we just talked about how that might play out in the context of law. But let's say, to use another example from law, you know, there's a traditional way of billing, billable hours. I know there's more fixed fees. Let's think about billable hours. And given that it might be possible to have technology that can monitor for levels of attention, it might be possible to move to a more precise form of billing. So instead of billable hours, which is rather crude, you could have billable attention. So the idea is the client only pays for when the lawyer is fully attentive to the file and not when they're daydreaming. And that is disconcerting. And one of the reasons it's disconcerting is because there's a kind of mental privacy dimension to all of this. 
if people make use of neurotech, whether it's invasive or non-invasive, and let's say the, the neurotech both reads from the brain and writes from the brain, well, one thing that's going to happen is that the people that run the technology are going to have more and more data about uh, individuals. Perhaps the brain information is particularly sensitive, and there's already concerns about algorithmic manipulation, whether it be in a political context or commercial context. And the combination of brain data into this, perhaps combined with direct electrical stimulation capacity, that seems to exacerbate these existing concerns that people might have about sort of mental privacy and, and autonomy. These are some ethical concerns. And then there's the issue of augmentation. So let's say more generally in society, some people use neurotech to augment themselves and they're smarter, they can pay attention for longer, they've got better memories. And then you can imagine a divide emerging that outpaces any divide from history. You know, it just eclipses any divide from history, much bigger than any digital divide, because the neurotechnological enhanced people are sort of smarter. And so that seems to bring some social issues. And then, of course, there's issues of discrimination then. You know, would it be okay to discriminate against somebody who's not neurotechnologically enhanced? Neurotechnology intersects very closely with AI, and we all know about algorithmic bias in the context of AI, but these biases might find their way into neurotech systems. There's really a whole host of ethical issues. And so one important question for neurotech companies is who in the company has got to consider all this? Is it the scientists? Is it the engineers? If they've got in-house legal counsel, is it them? But the in-house legal counsel are already too busy signing contracts and guiding them through the regulatory process. So there's a question, who's responsible for considering these ethical issues? There's a lot of things to think about. And as a result of that, there's various organizations that are thinking about the implications of these issues. So the OECD published a report on responsible innovation in Eurotech. UN's Human Rights Council, they've just recently said they want a report on neurotech and human rights. Really a lot to think about. And that's part of the reason why I'm keen to engage with the lawyers, because I think it's very important that lawyers be part of this more general conversation, as well as probably thinking about the possible opportunities for themselves in the neurotech space. Thank you. So that's a really good summary of the issues. And you know, you've painted a picture of where we are heading towards. So just back to the concerns around neurotechnology, what is the state of law currently and regulations? Probably not very much, but I'm keen to hear from you, which are the countries who are at the forefront of these discussions? Yeah, I think you're right to say there's not very much. So I think one of the big challenges that's going to come is if we've got this existing body of legal doctrine, cases and legislation in the common law that is going to set the scene for neurotech. And I think because of the strangeness of neurotech, it's going to put strain on much of the existing doctrine. I think the neurotech challenge is of a bigger magnitude and it's more fundamental. So that's one issue. But some countries have started to address neurotech. So you might have heard about a constitutional change that was attempted in Chile quite recently. Well, that didn't go through, but the Chileans did actually make a smaller alteration to their constitution at the end of 2021. 
And in the constitution, no refers to mental privacy and mental integrity, and that's partly in response to Neurotech. They've currently got a bill going through their legislature called the Neuroprotection Bill. My understanding is this hasn't been supported, but I know just because I'm sort of a bit plugged into this world, there's a bill in Argentina. I should say it hasn't been reported in English language press as far as I can see. There's a bill in Argentina to try and stop the non-consensual use of brain monitoring technologies in the criminal justice process. It's actually the Latin American world that's kind of at the forefront. I think uh, Spain's also had some kind of response to this as well. But yeah, thus far, there's not much of a direct response to Neurotech. One of the things that's quite interesting in the regulatory space is the question of what's the appropriate regulator. So, of course, there's very rigorous processes for the approval of therapeutic devices. So in America, they've got the FDA and in Australia, we've got the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And for an implanted therapeutic device, the regulation is really it's of a high standard and quite demanding. But some neurotech, it goes beyond therapy. So cognitive enhancement. So saying trying to increase somebody's capacity to pay attention or to remember things beyond the normal range, that's no longer therapy. And so you might think, well, is that still in the scope of the FDA, TGA regulatory ambit? Or does the scope need to be changed? So there's a question about who should be the regulator. I think with some of these questions in mind, it's quite important that law reform commissions around the world turn their mind to neurotech. So just coming to the end of our session today, I'd like to hear what your predictions are for the use of neurotechnology as the future of the legal industry. It doesn't sound like we are eons away from it now. Yes, the short-term future, I think the impact is probably in getting neurotech clients and guiding them through the regulatory process and other issues. That might be the case for therapeutic devices. And then companies that are engaged in producing consumer devices, they might also need legal advice. Sort of moving into the medium term, I think there's going to be challenges to legal doctrine in a variety of areas of law. I mentioned employment law, consumer law, criminal law. I think they're going to be challenged. And as a result of that, they might need advice on guidance through the regulatory process. And that's something that lawyers might wish to try and specialize in or monitor what's going on to find out who might need this advice and develop client base. Moving into the medium to long term, Lawyers themselves start to incorporate a neurotech into the way they work. They might start using monitoring technologies for the billing purposes, or they might start competing with each other using technology, but this time technology that might even be inside the body rather than external to it. But given the economic excitement around neurotech and the large number of companies and the people who are involved in the little startup, I think it's fairly clear that this thing's just going to get bigger. And one thing I think it's important for law firms to bear in mind is we're talking about technology, but it's not just technology involving a sort of AI system. It's neurotechnology. 
So it's technology involving the brain. And it's a bit of a different thing. There's something in common with the kind of technologies that law firms are wrestling with now in relation to AI. Neurotech uses AI, but there's also the neuro dimension, and law firms might omit that at their peril. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Sounds like there's lots to think about on the use of neurotechnology, and there's still a lot more work to be done to get the law and regulatory landscape ready for the use of neurotechnology, which is already happening around us and not so far away for lawyers and law firms. So thank you once again, Dr. Alan McCabe, for your time today. What can I say? It's been a really insightful discussion and the development and use of neurotechnology in the legal profession is really closer than one might think. And I'm really looking forward to understanding or seeing further uses in the future. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to discuss today's topic in more detail, please get in touch with me or any member of our innovation and best delivery team. You have all been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe and listen to our podcasts on the Clifford Chance website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify.